No more New York Times. No more New York Tribune. No newspapers, in fact. Nothing. It was December of 1962, and the New York Typographical Union went on strike, effectively stopping the presses, but not because editors wanted to put a breaking story on the front page. For months, until March of 1963, in fact, the local media was silenced in a way that seems almost inconceivable now. Although the people of New York City no doubt suffered by not having the usual coverage of politics, crime, and sports, a group of friends gathered for dinner one night and started talking about a different void, the lack of decent writing about contemporary literature. This included the editors Jason and Barbara Epstein, the writer Elizabeth Hardwick, and her husband, the poet Robert Lowell. These friends felt that existing book criticism was already bad, and sensing an opportunity amid the printer's strike, decided to do something about it. They launched their own magazine, the New York Review of Books, which not only filled the gap in literary criticism, but became one of its biggest champions. Today we have almost the opposite problem. So many mainstream publications about books, so many literary magazines who are struggling to survive both online and in print, an uncountable number of book bloggers, and authors who are creating their own digital platforms in order to prove they have a big enough audience to justify a book deal. Though the plethora of content out there might be daunting for even the most experienced librarian to deal with, an independent publisher and a literary magazine decided to rise to the occasion, and what they've created since has not only helped organize the best of literature online, but to make meaningful contributions to it. It's time for a close read of LitHub on the Owned Media Observer. The Owned Media Observer is an exercise in applying media criticism to the branded content that takes an editorial approach to storytelling. This is a podcast for content marketers who want to do better work, for media professionals who want to size up their competition, and for audiences of all kinds who want to better understand all the new sources of information popping up everywhere around them. When I'm not making this podcast, I work as a journalist covering business and technology and as a content marketing consultant helping some of the world's biggest brands and smallest startups influence the strategic thinking of their most valuable customers. You can find out more about me and maybe even work with me by visiting my website at shaneshick.com. Standing behind a chair next to a window, Morgan Entrican is smiling, but the setting for his portrait seems a bit odd in that there is not a single book or even so much as an e-reader to be seen. The president of Grove Atlantic was being photographed for an article in the Wall Street Journal published on February 5th, 2015, which introduced a project Entrican was then calling Literary Hub, whose need the article explained as follows. Quote, Publishers have faced a vexing question in recent years, as newspapers' book coverage shrinks and fewer people shop in brick-and-mortar bookstores. How might publishers open a conversation with readers online? without getting lost in the digital sea, end quote. Entrican explained that LitHub, as it would become known, would be underwritten by Grove Atlantic in partnership with the magazine Electric Literature. In that sense, LitHub would be owned media, 
in that instead of having literature covered by a traditional journalist over whom they had no control, they could commission anything about great books and great writers that they wanted. Instead of turning it into a public relations engine to sell more of its own books, though, Grove Atlantic decided from the very beginning to try and work with the wider publishing industry. There was a lot of positive response. Deals were quickly formed with Simon & Schuster, Knopf, and Farrar, Strau, and Guru, among many others. In a meeting with the National Book Critics Circle that was covered by the Washington Post, Entrican outlined another founding principle of LitHub that also seemed to be a bit odd for a book publisher. Quote, We're not doing reviews. Because this is being built by publishers, there are too many potential conflicts, Entrican said. Quote, we're not selling books. The moment you start selling books, you alienate one of your major stakeholders, the independent booksellers, end quote. Let's just pause for a moment and think about the implications of those words. Unlike mainstream fiction, like thrillers or romance novels, where a big author's name might be enough to drive purchases, successful literary fiction is largely built upon the backs of two things. One is awards, where a book that wins say, the Booker Prize or the Pulitzer Prize, will get the kind of promotion that even the largest publisher's marketing budget couldn't achieve. The other driver of literary success is reviews, where raves from the right people will attract the interest of readers who are dedicated about finding the richest, most genre-defying storytellers. If LitHub wasn't going to offer criticism, like the New York Review of Books did, And if it wasn't going to boost sales via e-commerce by creating a more curated version of Amazon, what was the point? Entrican's answer was simple. Quote, This is coming not from a desire to make money, but from a desire to save what's valuable about literary culture, he said. Quote, We need this. Literary culture needs this. In content marketing, we often talk about the trends within a given market or segment of an industry, but not necessarily about how telling stories about our target audience feeds a culture. The best-owned media, however, is always about enriching the community that's focused on some key areas of interest by bringing them new ideas, information, and inspiration that either didn't exist before or wasn't easy to put together. LitHub would change that, but in doing so, it would benefit from another principle that tends to define successful content marketing or owned media. As Publishers Weekly pointed out when LitHub was being created, there had been attempts to create a publication centered around readers before. Bookish, as the site was known, was far more broad-based, looking at mainstream novels and nonfiction as much as literature. It didn't last. And Entrican and his team were mindful of staying more narrowly focused on the niche that is literature. Though Bookish failed, there had been some other early successes before LitHub. In Canada, where I'm based, for example, Penguin Random House had launched Hazlitt, an excellent online literary magazine with interviews, essays, and even new works of fiction. As a literary lover myself, though, I became aware of LitHub almost immediately and would soon discover how well Intrican had executed on his vision, and how true he has stayed to his word. Now, if you work for a company that makes marketing software tools, or home alarms, or something like that, 
It might not seem fair that LitHub has access to some of the world's greatest and most celebrated novelists and essay writers to craft its content. I do want to share an example of what's published on LitHub in a little bit, but the object lesson here is not just in the stories themselves, but in the way they're presented for a particular kind of reader. For people who don't have the time or interest to read literature, you might imagine that reader looks a lot like Guy in your MFA, a fictitious Twitter account whose bio describes him as two rewrites away from finishing the great American novel, maybe about a 20-something in Brooklyn, who wears big black glasses and a woolen cap. As for literary publishers, the most cliched image might be that of the late George Plimpton, a journalist who co-founded the Paris Review and who also made a series of appearances in movies like Goodwill Hunting. He always had the look of a wispy-haired, aging preppy type, kind of stuffy and maybe even a little out of touch with the times. LitHub does not look like a site George Plumpton would have edited, and Guy in Your MFA would probably turn his nose up at it. One of the first stories that came up when I randomly visited LitHub to develop this episode had the headline, Upon realizing the Golden Girls was coming to an end, I sat down and wept. For younger listeners, the Golden Girls was a sitcom in the 1990s, and the article is an excerpt from an essay collection, and it examines the way pop culture depicts later stages of life, like retirement. There was also... How Did Louis C.K. Get Away With It For So Long? Another excerpt from a book called The Guilty Feminist that explores the challenges within the Me Too movement. There were also stories about the uh, coronavirus, about medically assisted death, and one about Hollywood's legendary leading canines. If none of this sounds particularly literary, consider an article about former U.S. President Barack Obama's writing and how it was shaped by reading books like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, the inspiration for the film Apocalypse Now. Another story features conversations with the late David Foster Wallace, while yet another studies a novel about pre-revolutionary Iran. Though there's work of deep substance on LitHub, it's packaged in a way that celebrates literature, rather than foisting it on anyone. The content consistently draws connections between what's happening in the world and the canon of great books, as well as new books that might one day enter that canon. The menu that runs across the top of LitHub almost serves as a mission statement in the way that topics range from the serious work of writing to the fun of experiencing it. The menu starts with a section on crafting criticism, followed by fiction and poetry, news and culture, LitHub radio, reading list, bookmarks, and crime reads. Those last two areas show show how much LitHub has grown in the last five years. Bookmarks has been compared to Rotten Tomatoes, a site that aggregates reviews of movies as they're released to see if there's something of a critical consensus. Bookmarks does the same thing with literature and allows LitHub to feature criticism but not produce it directly, and thereby avoids the conflicts that Intricate had mentioned. Crime Reads, meanwhile, is an example of what we in content marketing or publishing call a vertical, or a niche within the niche, recognizing that the same person can enjoy Shakespeare and Jane Austen, as well as Lee Child or Linwood Barclay. LitHub began as more of an attempt to curate what was already online about literature, 
And that continues today with LitHub Daily, which links to some of the best articles about books from many well-known and sometimes very little-known websites. This kind of aggregation and curation was already being done through a great site called Arts and Letters Daily, or aldaily.com. But LitHub shows how publishing content as well as linking around it feels like a more complete experience, more of what the internet is supposed to feel like. It could be that LitHub comes across as more accessible to general readers who don't have a Master of Fine Arts degree, because there seems to be this never-ending series of pronouncements that literature is dead or that literature is not relevant. You don't just see this in mainstream newspapers or supposedly lowbrow publications. It's even in places like the New York Review of Books, which published a piece in 2019 titled, Does Literature Help Us Live?, According to its author, Tim Parks, who suggests that literature subtly flatters our sense of self-interest, the answer seems to be no. Quote, In this belief in self, or in the construction of selfhood, is to be considered unwise, then literature, for all its magnificent achievements, becomes as much a part of the problem as the solution, an addiction that feeds the sufferings it consoles, Parks writes. Quote, One enjoys Kafka's The Metamorphosis. One admires Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, or Bernhard's Gargoyles. But one comes away with a heightened sense of how much more literature will be required to console such a desperate human condition. You don't see this kind of boohooing on LitHub. Instead, it's all about trying to help people see the humanity in the giants of fiction, poetry, and other forms of great writing. A good example is the headline, Lord Byron used to call William Wordsworth Turdsworth. And yes, this is a real historical fact. I can't imagine that headline in the New York Review of Books, or the New Yorker, or Harper's Magazine. The same goes for 50 fictional booksellers, ranked. A listicle that includes characters from movies like Notting Hill, and You've Got Mail, and the Netflix series You. At its best, LitHub enlarges the sense of where literature fits into contemporary society with subsections on travel, sports, design, food, science, and technology. Many stories also show how today's top issues have long-established roots, like one headlined Poverty, Anxiety, and Gender in Scottish Working-Class Literature, whereas a lot of other literary sites seem to move at the glacial pace of book publishing, LitHub tends to be timely. I read a great piece about Toni Morrison published almost immediately after her death in 2019. Maybe out of fear of losing money to Hollywood, many traditional publications about books have also tried to keep the focus on books as books. LitHub, though, is as avid about coverage of literary adaptations as it is to the art of translating literary work into other languages. So much of what's original to LitHub is excellent, but by repurposing content, the site sometimes does an even greater service to its audience. Where else might you find this long, thoughtful, and incendiary transcript of a talk given by the writer Erin Daddy Roy about what she calls the project of unseeing, where we turn a blind eye to the caste system in India? This is an excerpt from The Graveyard Talks Back, Fiction in the time of fake news. 
The foundation of today's fascism, the unacceptable fake history of Hindu nationalism, rests on a deeper foundation of another apparently more acceptable, more sophisticated set of fake histories that allied the stories of caste, of women, and a range of other genders, and of how those stories intersect below the surface of the grand narrative of class and capital. To challenge fascism means to challenge all of this. Sometimes I feel self-servingly perhaps, the way a surgeon has faith in surgery, that fiction is uniquely positioned to do this because fiction has the capaciousness, the freedom and latitude to hold out a universe of infinite complexity because every human is really a walking sheaf of identities, a Russian doll that contains identities within identities, each of which can be shuffled around each of which may defy some and simultaneously comply with other normal conventions by which people are crudely and often cruelly defined, identified, and organized. Particularly so in this feudal medieval society of ours in India, one that is pretending to be modern, yet continues to practice one of the most brutal forms of social hierarchy in the world. I'm not talking here of fiction as expose, or the writer of social wrongs. Nor do I mean fiction that is a disguised manifesto, or is written to address a particular issue or subject. I mean fiction that attempts to recreate the universe of the familiar, but then makes visible what the project of unseeing seeks to conceal. Most people, I imagine, believe that it would restrict a writer's range and imagination, steal away those moments of intimacy and contemplation, without which a literary text does not amount to very much. I've often caught myself wondering, if I were to be incarcerated or driven underground, would it liberate my writing? Would I become simpler, more lyrical, perhaps, less negotiated? It's possible. But right now, as we struggle to keep the windows open, I believe our liberation lies in the negotiation. Hope lies in texts that can accommodate and keep alive our intricacy, our complexity, and our density against the onslaught of the terrifying, sweeping simplifications of fascism. As they barrel towards us, speeding down their straight, smooth highway, we greet them with our beehive, our maze. We keep our complicated world with all it seems exposed, are live in our writing. That talk covers a lot of ground, but I think the excerpt makes a more forceful argument about why literature matters, and matters even more today than many others that I've read who focused more strictly on the artistic aspects of novels and poetry. The big risk with a piece of owned media like LitHub is that it becomes too broad, that it loses a sense of who it's for by trying to be too many things to too many people. I think LitHub might be accused of occasionally leaning too far towards entertainment value or in trying to increase literature's popularity. But the fact is we do have the New York Review of Books and many other more traditional publications that are almost academic in tone and approach. LitHub's achievement is not just in publishing or creating content, a lot of what it runs is from a larger work, for instance, but in introducing readers to authors or ideas they might have never stumbled upon otherwise. It reminds us that the notion of browsing did not originate when the internet was created, but used to be something that primarily focused on 
in my case, spending hours gazing at the spines of novels on the shelf of a bookstore. Without having to go all over the web in search of literature, you can effectively browse on LitHub and get a lot of what you wanted and a lot of what you didn't know you wanted. And in my case, at least, I've ended up going to a bookstore afterwards. This was done without what content marketers call a CTA or call to action to make a target audience do something. The very nature in which this media is published is its own CTA. That may not seem doable for brands in other sectors, but there are a lot of other sectors doing content marketing that aren't nearly as analog in nature as book publishing. LitHub has truly become a hub, and it works because it doesn't make us forget about the spokes. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please subscribe on whatever service you use to get the best podcasts. I'm always open to feedback as well as suggestions for other examples of owned media I should critique. Send your ideas or comments my way via email at schickmedia at gmail.com or on social media like Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Toronto, Canada, and is only possible thanks to all the brands that pay me to help them create content that serves the needs of their communities. This has been Shane Schick for the Owned Media Observer. Thanks for listening.